Hello and welcome to a new retirement podcast series brought to you by Connexus Financial, hosted in association with the investment magazine, Professional Planner, and our media and event partner, the Financial Planning Association of Australia. My name is Alex Promos and I'm the head of institutional content and investment magazine. Along with my colleagues, Lawrence Parker-Brown and Matthew Smith, we spent the past five months curating content focused on the most pertinent issues in retirement for both institutional and retail fiduciaries. Since Paul Keating first steered the superannuation guarantee into law in 1992, Australia has been recognised for its accumulation or defined contribution system. However, when it comes to meeting the needs of retirees, such as delivering advice, determining an appropriate investment strategy and navigating a dignified retirement, Australia has a lot to learn. This podcast series offers exclusive access to conversations with thought leaders in the retirement sector as they discuss ways to improve the system. I hope you enjoy the podcast series. Hello and welcome everyone to the Retirement Podcast Series brought to you by Connexus Financial. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content at Investment Magazine. Today I'm joined um, by uh, with, with David Bell from uh, Connexus Institute, a former CIO at Mind Super. Um, welcome, David. Thanks, Alex. Uh, good to be involved in the podcast. I thought I'd just take the chance to um, mention what the Connexus Institute is all about. So, the Connexus Institute has a similar name, Connexus, as Connexus Financial, but it is a separate entity. It's a philanthropically funded, not-for-profit research entity that's um, been established to do research that is impactful on retirement outcomes. So we spend time doing research, um, often collaborative research with industry and, and academia, and then we spend a lot of time targeting the research and then targeting how to make sure that research has impact. So it could be a good example might be um, working on a particular area of risk. We might um, consult on it, work with people and then build some models and then make those models open source and hopefully get to share them with the regulators and the industry. And that will improve um, industry quality and then hopefully um, you know, consumer outcomes as well, which, is, which would be fantastic. Yeah, look, it's 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 great to have someone that can lead an institute, you know, particularly someone who's seen the the challenges with investment teams, the challenges of governance, managing stakeholders. Um, superannuation is you know, still relatively a, a new industry since you know nineteen ninety two. It's been around, and over the last few years, the the speed of change within these super funds has been enormous, and particularly around um, choice and and marketing and the competitiveness of super funds um, and. It's received a lot of interest, obviously, from the government and, and APRA around performance of super funds, just given the amount of money that, that they hold. Um, and I think you know, what's interesting is, is the ability of the Connects Institute to really drive some, some better uh, outcomes, and particularly for members, um, and how we can do that more collaboratively um, is, is really uh, an important outcome of, of the Institute. I guess one of the things that I thought we should, we should touch on today you know, as, as we think about retirement and super funds is an article that you've just published recently on investment magazine that talks about whether CIOs have the ability to make heroic market calls. You know, and we all know the the background uh, around the economic and financial situation in markets today. And, and we've seen some very significant drawdowns in uh, listed markets uh, and, and some similar drawdowns now in the unlisted space, the number of super funds have, have uh, announced. I guess I thought we should touch back on that on that piece, and and for me to ask you really, you know, if we look at super funds and um, we sort of say that they can't afford to make these heroic calls, but really, you know, is is there a place for super funds to be able to make these big market calls? You know, we 
we've looked at the last financial crisis and we all saw the big short movie and, and saw how much hedge funds were able to make um, over that period by making some very large calls. I thought it'd be a good, good opportunity for you, David, I think, to give us a bit of context on why it's so difficult for, for super funds to, to, to make those sort of calls. Yeah, it's good good comparison there, Alex, to, to think about the superannuation industry and then think about the hedge fund industry. And, and you did have those um, small number of funds which made heroic calls and made, you know, in the hedge fund industry during the global financial crisis, made huge amounts of money for their investors. And they, now they're really celebrated. And, um, yeah, and sometimes you might look at that and sort of say, well, well, how come our industry doesn't do that? How come that those types of big calls don't exist in the superannuation industry? And, and I actually think there's a whole range of reasons for that. Um, you know, for instance, to highlight a few of those reasons, there's large differences in the business model of an APRA regulated super fund compared to a boutique style hedge fund. So that's a huge thing to reflect on. And then also consider the, the different uh, governance models of those two groups. So the governance model of a super fund versus the light governance light model of, of boutique uh, hedge funds. Should also think about I think it's also important to reflect on the amount of time that key investment decision makers have to generate high conviction views. So generating these views is, is, is really hard work to feel like you have insight into the market that the market hasn't quite digested yet. So to get ahead of the market is very difficult. And to do that takes a lot of time and deep investment research. And yeah, you probably argue that, um, hedge fund managers are set up to have more of that time whereas sometimes it can be hard for the CIOs of super funds to to have that that time to do that deep dive and gain that conviction and then finally uh having you know looked at hedge funds for you know many years I had a career in hedge funds I've had a career in super funds um my experience is that market timing is a very difficult thing to do well and in this particular crisis, I actually think it's even harder to do well, um, perhaps even harder than it was during the GFC. So there are a whole range of reasons and, and it's good to have that movie that we can compare against what we're seeing in the newspapers um, on a day-to-day basis at the moment. So, um, yeah, I think some of those, those topics might be good ones to break open, Alex. Yeah, I guess my first my first area was around sort of uh, the governance the governance structure. And whenever you talk to CIOs, they're always talking about the endless IC papers that they're needing to put together, uh, and and the long process that that is, and the long process in terms of getting things out. Um, I guess you know, is is there flexibility for that to change, or is the system just so bureaucratic that it is very difficult for governance the the governance structures that are there to be able to be flexible enough for people to make more sort of market timing style investment decisions? I actually think it's the latter. And I, I don't necessarily say, unfortunately, the latter, because if you take, accept my view that market timing is a really difficult thing to do well, then perhaps we should have some natural controls in terms of the size of the bets that do get reflected around people's retirement savings. So we can talk about that point later, because that's a little bit of an aside. But the governance is there and I can't see an easy way that it will change. And then the reason for that is because ultimately it's the trustee board who are responsible for the outcomes that are delivered to members. So even though the CIO might have strong 
high conviction views, unless they can instill that conviction into the trustee board um, to make a significant call, which can put them at risk of delivering outcomes to members and the regulatory scrutiny that could come with that, then you can sort of start to see why the, the views get diluted down. I think there's, there's two issues there, Alex. One is that the first is that um, it's possibly easier to get conviction amongst a small group of people. And as that group of people become larger, you get a more disparate collection of views. And it's hard to naturally that dilution, that, that um, level of conviction would get diluted down amongst a larger group of people because you have more alternative views bouncing off each other. And then secondly, just the existence of um, this governance risk that hangs over a trustee and also the peer group risk that they have to be cognizant of uh, would mean that the size of the view would always get scaled back to something that might um, is always going to be controlled in terms of tracking error relative to peers rather than the size of the outright investment outcome. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to sort of touch on on that sort of the sizing and conviction that you have there because ultimately you're, we're seeing some super funds really develop their own internal teams, right? And they're trying to take take in house a lot of their uh, expectations about markets and trying to bring research in house. So ultimately, they're, they're starting to look a little bit more like asset managers or hedge funds ultimately in terms of how they're you're taking more and more things inside, but then they don't have the flexibility to to get that those those calls actually in place. So is is there a bit of a disconnect between what's happening maybe on the super fund space in in their business models versus what happens with hedge funds? It's interesting. It's it's a good question. I, I think it's partly a question of scale as well. So the whole internalization discussion can easily be justified. Or sorry, one way of justify it could be through cost savings and so to think of a 100 billion dollar superannuation fund one basis point is 10 million dollars and so once you have numbers like that and once you raise it up a level and this is what you often see at government policy um, around the industry and and so it makes sense that similar policies would apply through the thinking of boards is that cost savings always feel much more certain than um, promised investment outperformance. And so there's always potentially going to be greater acceptance of um, making changes which can save money rather than make changes such as um, taking on more, in, more investment alpha risk, which aren't certain in, in outcome. So I actually think that's one of the reasons why you've seen the success in, um, fun, in super funds being supporting their investment teams in terms of that decision to internalize it's a bit of a cost drive but what you are what you can also say which is the essence of your question is that well these funds have now got greater internal capability themselves some of them are moving to more of a total portfolio approach where they should be able to better bring together all the pieces of information around from different parts of the marketplace and really bring that information together and create some insightful views. And yes, they may be doing that, or no, it may be too early days for some of these funds and perhaps they need to have done it for a while to have, you know, iron out the wrinkles and, and, and get to a point where they can do it with conviction. I'd sort of say, um, yeah, you see funds that, that total portfolio TPA approach, I'd sort of say the future fund's a good example of a group that's done that for a long time. 
ironed out a lot of the wrinkles in that model, which you know, is in essence is really about high quality collaboration and, and information sourcing. And you do see they make market timing calls. You see their level of exposure to you know, equity beta, as they call it, or their EEE equity equivalent exposure does go up and down. But you know, the range of that exposure changes still isn't huge. You, know, you might see them increase or decrease their equity equivalent exposure by 5% might be the type of number. Now, if you think of what 5% means, well, it can mean a lot. 5% might, in a 30% drawdown, is, is um, that's 1.5% returns. But, um, yeah, it's not, it's not the type of heroic return outcomes that you see um, in those hedge fund stories, is it? So, you can, yeah, I'm just trying to piece it together for you there. Yeah, I guess I guess you know the super funds are so paranoid about 30 40 basis points, right? And trying to save costs there. But if you can actually gain an extra 100 basis points because you've managed to be able to position correctly, then the fee conversation is almost a bit negated. Um, and look, it's difficult to make market timing calls, but there also seems to be a lack of flexibility from a lot of these super funds in their willingness to really move what is their balance fund. The balance funds, you know, they've got ranges, but how far do they really move and how far do they really move different to their peer group? And and so that's one of the things that's, you know, for me, really interesting when you have a situation where you've got all these large funds, but if they all end up copying each other in, in basically how they structure their portfolios, you're not really creating a market. And so you then have situations where they're all looking to decrease liquidity at the same time and it creates almost a systemic type risk. Um, and so I guess it comes back to the old challenge of super funds where if they don't have the flexibility to sort of make some of these big calls, are we actually making the system a little bit, you know, riskier because of it, because everyone's sort of on the same structure and the same asset allocation? Yeah, lots of good question, issues and questions packed into, into your comments there, Alex. Uh, probably just to address a couple of them and, and please feel free to raise some of the other issues with me is is this issue of uh, systemic risk that arises from peer grouping. So, so where does peer grouping come from? Well, it comes from the way that super fund performance is compared. So that's coming through the research ratings process where funds are peer grouped by the amount of exposure they have to growth and defensive assets, which is a pretty basic measure of risk exposure effectively. And so, you know, funds you know, there's that saying, how you get measured impacts how you act. And that's that's going to be the case with, with that issue flowing through. Now, that's probably been reinforced a little bit by what's happened recently with the APRA heat map, where uh, I actually think APRA has done some things which, um, you know, try and discourage peer grouping a little bit or, you know, create a bit of flexibility, but they've done some other things such as the direct Fee, comparison, fee comparisons on the heat map, which might encourage a bit more peer grouping in terms of more passive exposure and things like that. So there's multiple drivers of this peer group risk. And so it is, you know, it's going to be a hard one for the industry to break out of. And there are some funds which do have quite different asset allocations. And, you know, those funds, uh, I take my hat off to them for, for, for putting member outcomes uh, rating, highlighting the importance of member outcomes over and above the peer group relative outcomes. That's a big decision and a brave decision for a, 
a, a board of a trustee to make and I, I really admire the grips that can do that. Now the, the, the systemic risk that it creates is really important. If you have, um, yeah, the idea of having a lot of funds in the industry is to diversify sources of risk. But then you've pointed out that if, well, hang on, if everyone has the same asset allocation, then you do effectively have this one big um, identical asset allocation pool and, and, and you're correct in that observation. So that systemic risk becomes large. Now, you know, it's actually tough to work out what's the impact of that um, because, you know, if you have a dispersed universe of super funds doing quite different things, then you're going to have winners and losers amongst the population. Whereas if you go the other way and have everyone, all the funds doing the same thing, um, at least there'll be consistency of outcomes across the population, but perhaps you can have some very bad outcomes where everyone in the population has a terrible outcome at the same time. So that's sort of the impact of the systemic risk. Probably the question I'd ask is that if everyone's doing the same thing, then do you need as many super funds as what we currently have? Yeah, should it just be a, a, you know, a single super fund delivering large economies of scale and a, and a consistent outcome to everyone? Well, that's I guess that's the that's really the biggest question here, which is you know, the pressure for 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 less funds, and and there has been a lot of push, obviously, in terms of mergers. But you do run the risk with having one one large fund, and the you know, the argument is with one large fund you lose that competitiveness between the funds. But then we also have a situation where we have industry funds that uh, you know have historically been okay in the sense that there's this diversified group of people that that pay into them. But now, in in the current economic environment where we've had whole you know whole swathes of of the economy uh, you know losing large amounts of employment, you know hospitality is is a, is a good one. Uh, Aviation is another one, um, and so these funds that were seen to be quite safe um, because of the member groupings and the large you know number of people are now under risk, and so I guess the historical uh, structure of some of these industry funds. That were you know designed based on an industry grouping, you know, do they still have the same merit? And is that something that you know will be questioned in going forward? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I, I think there's a lot of um, pros and cons about industry-specific uh, superannuation funds. Uh, yeah, I've I've actually seen hands-on many of the benefits of a um, industry-specific superannuation fund, and and a lot of those benefits come in terms of the possible partnerships around engagement. And so, you know, if you think of how important it is to, to get members a little bit more engaged and, and get them aware of financial well-being and, and issues such as that and prepared for the range of outcomes they may face, um, such as the current environment, so they can be more, um, feel like they're still in control of their retirement outcomes as they face into an environment like this and not panic as much. They're some of the benefits of good engagement and I think if you, um, some industries which are quite union dominated um, and then we get these positive um, models where the unions are engaging with the employers in engagement partnership models along with the superannuation fund, they can be really good frameworks for getting a whole of an industry um, engaged, understanding their super and feeling like they're in control, which actually has workplace benefits as well. So I've actually seen some of the good side of, of that model. I think one of the, and I don't think that that was particularly well explored in, in for instance, the Productivity Commission. Um, their work sort of 
couldn't really nail the benefit of strong engagement. And you won't get that engagement under, um, you won't get that same engagement model if you go down the path of a single superannuation fund um, because it'll be multi-industry and, and a lot of those traditional engagement models will, will disappear. Um, so, so there is that, that issue, sorry, there is that positive to it. But the, the downside is that what you've identified is that there's actually a operational business risk to these industry specific uh, superannuation funds in that if they lose, if their industry experiences a shock, um, the operating business model of the super fund could potentially become impaired. We're sort of in a time where there's that pressure to bring fees down. So competition on, on op operating fees is intense. And so if you're not growing or you're um, in effect shrinking as a fund, your operational revenues are shrinking, it's a very tough time for funds like that. And so, yeah, that's where you diversify that business risk by having a multi-industry approach or effectively just a, a much larger sort of um, fund that's maybe just for all Australians to, to invest into. So, yeah, there, there's definitely pros and cons there, Alex. Yeah, look, I, I totally understand the member engagement piece. It's easier to talk to your audience. And, and when you have such a large fund that has one, two million members to actually have that member engagement piece is going to be extremely difficult. And and particularly at a time like now where I think super funds have a lot of uh, hard work to do in terms of actually communicating and re-engaging with their members, um, particularly at a time when you, know, you can withdraw ten or twenty thousand dollars from your account, and and seemingly it seems with you know quite low documentation to actually get the money out. Funds really have a a very important role in terms of communication um, with, with their members, and so I guess that's that's the challenge when you have these very large funds, um, and then you've also got choice on the side, which makes it really complicated for funds to communicate to their people around staying the course. Um, yeah, this superannuation is there for your retirement, uh, and at the same time, they're seeing large drawdowns, and and they're not being able to get the information from their super funds that they really need. Do you have any comments on on that? Yeah, I, I think um, no, I think those comments are well made. I, I, uh, yeah, it's a tough one. I, I think um, no, I'm gonna have to pause there, Alex. Can you just go through it again? <laughs> No, look, it, look, it's uh, it's one of those things. No, look, it's one of those things where uh, I think super funds have a really challenging piece where, you know, superannuation was sort of sacrosanct in terms of, you know, you couldn't touch it. It was there for your retirement. And, you know, last Sunday, the government announced that you could withdraw money early to, you know, to cover your expenses day to day, obviously, as, as a, almost a type of stimulus. Um, and these super funds now are not only challenged by the liquidity requirements that come to it, uh, but also trying to keep people to stay the course. And actually, you know, they spend a lot of time, a lot of super funds have spent a, a huge amount of time engaging members to actually increase their contributions. Now you're yeah. saying you can take money out and the likelihood is they may actually stop their you know, additional contributions. Yeah, no, um, you're, you're, yeah I'm with you now. Um, sorry about that. I think um, one of the challenges with any sort of review of superannuation industry is, yeah, you've got a whole range of issues, good and you know, positive and negative, and some are very tangible, such as investment performance and 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 um, the fees that are charged by superannuation funds. You can draw insights from that. You can 
put them two together and, and account for higher fees by better investment performance and check if that's coming out and so forth. And, and that's why a lot of the regulatory reviews anchor on those type of things. And, you know, cost savings are permanent or, or yeah, there's more certain. So people weigh even more heavily on that against investment outcomes, which are a little bit less certain, of course. But the big intangible there is the other issue, which is what you were just talking about, which is engagement. So how do you, yeah, if, yeah and, and in sort of my academic studies, I've sort of touched into areas of engagement and it's not an area where it's very easy at all to put a tangible value to engagement. And so it's very hard then to grab those two or three issues and weigh them off against each other because you're comparing a, a couple which are more tangible against one which is quite intangible. And it's always going to be generally the case that as a result, people downweight the intangible values of some of the things that can, some of the good things that can come out of superannuation funds, such as greater engagement. Let's come back to the investment performance piece because you know when I look at it from a, from an outsider's view, we've got this this product. Let's call it that at a, at a CPI plus two, three, four percent um, as something that you can invest in. Now that's that's seen to be the product, but over the last few years we've seen 10, 12, 13, you know, in some cases 18% last year in terms of performance for some of these super funds. Are these sort of large numbers creating almost unrealistic unrealistic expectations for some of the pension fund and and also you know, people that are saving with their super as they see that his that history that becomes almost like their bias that this is the sort of performance I should expect. And that's now going to maybe lead to even greater scrutiny from the public on super funds in terms of their performance. Um, so, you know, I guess it's more of whether the super funds have almost created their own problem in chasing higher and higher returns and pushing pushing the boundary um, and you know, sort of moved away from what was what was truly defined as a balance fund historically. Yeah, I think, yeah, you go into the history there, what was the default, what did the default solutions look like? And in defence of the superannuation industry, I haven't seen that creep up in default risk, yeah, in the risk of default option design since the introduction of GFC, sorry, since the introduction of um, my super options. I think most super funds, their default options have been reasonably consistent in terms of the amount of risk they're taking. I've seen some... um, uptick their risk targets a little bit to chase returns a little bit. I definitely agree with that. And there's there's examples there of that. But equally so, I've seen some funds actually dial risk down facing into the current environment of having had a good run of returns and sort of saying, well, things are expensive. So I wouldn't say there's a systemic trend there of, of chasing returns, um, but there's definitely examples to that. However, if you bring it back to consumer behaviour and, and potentially even... Um, within industry mindset, yeah, we're often conditioned to be a bit myopic and the more, yeah, the more there's that recency bias where the more recent information we, we receive, which is higher returns, we tend to use that as a relativity that we're comparing against. If you're targeting CPI plus three um, in, your, in your post-retirement option or just before retirement, then yeah, 4.5% is actually right on target. And but it wouldn't feel like that if if a member was told that you know six months ago. Obviously, if they're offered four and a half percent now, they'd probably be overjoyed. And so you, you yeah you've got that consumer message. 
And it's just a difficult time for the industry. We've had um, yeah, such a long run running bull market post GFC driven by liquidity provision and so forth. That's probably created reset expectations in an unhealthy way. And so um, yeah, I wouldn't pin that one on the industry. It's just circumstantial. They've, yeah, it would be nearly as irresponsible for them not to participate in those returns. So yeah, it is hard to get you know, the, the evidence on you know, being able to time markets, even over long terms, pretty mixed. Um, and so you know, the, the approach of superannuation funds is to have a reasonably anchored asset allocation around which they might move around a little bit through time. And so that means that you know, they've effectively participated in this big run. But of course, in the current environment, they're going to have experienced um, quite sharp losses as well. I guess you know, in terms of in terms of these losses and and trying to reduce the the fallout of these sorts of uh, times. I guess one of the things that comes to mind is that superannuation. Obviously, you have choice. We also have daily navs that come out. You know, is is there more that needs to be done in terms of trying to reduce that risk of people almost? thinking about their superannuation on a daily basis? Yeah, that, it's an important question. It goes to multiple levels, doesn't it? It's a, you know, it's a question for government. It's a question for policymakers and regulators. And it's also a question for industry, although I think at the end of the day, the industry just has to, to implement what they're being told to do on that one. It'd be very hard for uh, one particular super fund to say, hang on, we're stepping back from this. We're only offering... Um, the ability to switch monthly or quarterly. I think that's not a realistic position that most super funds could take um, just because of the structure of, of how, how it works. Um, I, I think they can't, they can't really do that. So, you know, but the question, the issue you raise is right. If superannuation is for such a, a long-term investment and it's all about the compounding of returns through time and, you know, hopefully a lifetime of contributions, then is there a need and is there a need for you know to have uh, make available and, and in some cases market the degree of frequency of of redemptions or switching that's available to you and then i think the other aspect to your question is that you know it does create a liquidity risk management challenge and and obviously a lot of the retail funds have elected to take very little of that risk at at all and it probably fits their operational models but then you've got the um yeah generally the industry-based funds which have invested in the unlisted assets which have served those funds very well does create risk particularly um around liquidity risk liquidity a range of liquidity type risks around um for instance liquidity mismatch the fairness of the portfolio that when you when members are going in and out, and also some fair unit pricing issues in between valuation points. So there's definitely issues there, and yeah, what's important there is that those those risks have been managed well in the current environment, and that the policies are strong. So hopefully, um, hopefully they've all done the right thing through that. It's interesting because that's where we started the whole conversation in terms of looking at the comparison between hedge fund and super funds, and a, and a number of hedge funds do have you know monthly liquidity options. That's that's all they have, um, and yet super funds, you know, are seen to be these long-term asset allocators, and they've got to manage liquidity in, in a big way, particularly as you know the the demographics are changing and they need to start paying out more money. That liquidity 
concern gets larger and larger through through time. Um, so that was that was sort of a an interesting corollary to to the situation. You're spot on, and yeah, you know, yeah. You know, if we want to, yeah, there's some murmurings about yeah you know, nation building type projects and so forth in this type of situation, but yeah, you know, that capital base that the industry has is not as strong as it could be if it permits continues to permit you know daily redemptions and switching so you know it's it's probably once the dust settles that's the right time to have a, a rethink on um well what how we what type of mismatch do we want to have do we want to promote superannuation as long term um then let's have a liquidity profile that matches that or do we or do we continue as is but then recognize that the ability to participate in some of the private market opportunities isn't isn't as strong because you have to be risk aware there. Yeah, you, you mentioned you mentioned the the na- you know, the nation building aspect to super funds, and I think if you did a survey of most most uh, super fund uh, you know members, they they talk about you know their willingness to to fund these sorts of projects, um, and the government you know it, it sort of keeps every so often just raises the. The opportunity there of, of nation building and whether that means for super funds to provide liquidity to some parts of the corporate bond market to provide infrastructure you know what, what's been the challenge there i know we've seen some super funds you know, get involved in infrastructure projects um you know in sydney with with the with the light rail but you know what what's the challenges there that super funds face as you know they they need to you know they're going to have more and more pressure to do nation building activities but then actually putting them into place and communicating that with members? Yeah, I think um, it's probably addressed on a fund-by-fund basis. I think there's many funds that can put up great slides showing many of the projects that they've been involved in and um, they are sort of supporting that. And don't forget that, um, you know, public com- you know, investing in public Australian public companies and some of the new initiatives Supporting capital raising for some of their new initiatives is actually supporting nation building as well. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it is a bit of a case by case basis. But don't, yeah, let's not also forget that. Um, I can I can jump in there in terms of the nation building piece where, where there is an expectation almost that, you know, that super funds um, can provide, can, you know, can provide help to the industry. Um, whether it's you know to purchase some real estate that that may be distressed, to purchase corporate debt that may be distressed, but now we've also got a situation where um, you're you're allowing the super fund members to withdraw ten and twenty thousand dollars at a time when super funds could be the could be this this lender of last resort and and, and actually help you know some of these projects that that may have failed or um, yeah. provide you know equity to to the Qantases uh, of of uh, of Australia and um, and provide a lot of capital, which is what happened in two thousand and eight, and and now it's sort of got a different situation where we're sucking liquidity out of the super funds at the same time as we need some super, we need some of that money that is in super funds to provide liquidity to to. Um, yeah. No, thanks for picking me up on that. That's the line I was on, and also just wanted to bring in there is that you know everything has a price, and super funds remain driven and guided by the sole purpose test. And so everything has to stack up from a return perspective and a, a risk-adjusted return perspective. And so during the GFC, when, they, when there were all those capital raisings, particularly in public market capital raisings, the super funds participated there because they got comfortable with the risk and could see that they were getting 
assets at an attractive price and and it did turn out very well for them so so <clears throat> i get your point and i do think it is re really relevant that <clears throat> as soon as we introduce um some initiatives like government policy around superannuation grants which puts more risk on the liability side or the stability of the capital within the superannuation system, the lesser our ability to provide support to, from the investment side. Yeah, it can happen in the public market space, but probably less so in the private market space. And I guess one of the other questions that, that's come up in terms of superannuation in, in recent days is, is a superannuation guarantee. And that's been a very controversial point um you know i guess what 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 are the arguments for for the superannuation industry to actually maintain that to you know just to show that that there is relevance there because there is a lot of i i would say conversations that are happening in in mainstream media that 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 money should be returned to to their members for this year or or a couple of years given that the the economic differences and difficulties that uh, a lot of members are facing you know, is that another threat to, to superannuation that, that super funds need to get out in front of to, to try and make sure that the industry remains um, as strong as it's ever been? I think the first observation there is that, um, yeah, there is the risk of, um, there is policy mistake risk at the moment. And I'm not saying the superannuation grants is a policy mistake or anything. I think you have to, see how these things are implemented, see how they wash through. And then ultimately, yeah, sometimes you identify the mistake in hindsight, but there is some chance that that policy will have a large impact on superannuation funds. And you know, even in the short term, it can impact some funds and create a little bit of risk there. So we have to watch closely how that one settles down. The, you know, pausing on SG, again, it's, one of those tricky ones yet you have to be very careful just sort of coming up with a with a quick quick view on that it's a very new it's a nuanced issue you have to think who it's going to benefit so it's largely benefiting the employed people not not the unemployed people so is it actually going to have the impact that, you, that you're going to have you know if it was a way to allow um greater employment rather than um you know and, and save jobs then that would have more merit to it but if it's effectively saying, you know, I'm just seeing through the benefit side because I think there's a lot of things on the you know, negative impact side to, to work through. But if I'm just focusing on the benefits, what we're saying is that um, employed people may get a bonus, an in-pocket bonus, and I'm not probably as stressed as other people in the industry about missing out on a, a year of... Um, contributions or, or for a short period of time i think that's a in terms of that having a huge impact on your retirement outcome i don't i think it's only a relatively small impact so is the benefit going to be there is it going to go into the hands of the people who who need it the most is it going to reduce unemployment um i'm not sure that all those things would flow through all right, let's uh, let's wrap it up in terms of a, a last question, and, and that is in terms of performance. A lot of people are going to look at their balances in the next uh, quarter or two and, and and sort of wonder what they were invested in, and um, yeah, some of them have been in a balanced fund, and a lot of questions about growth and defensive in terms of what they've invested in and 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 getting a feel for what they should 
should uh, have have received. Um, in some cases, some people might have seen their performance and said, "Well, I thought I was in a relatively balanced fund that was defensive." And uh, I guess you know what 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 can be done in that in that space in terms of trying to help reduce the difference between what members you know have have expected you know historically versus what they what they should expect um, going forward. Uh, look, I, I think it's about education around time horizon, and unfortunately, you, you will. We've got a you know, consumer consumer education or consumer financial education or consumer sorry consumer financial literacy in Australia remains weak as it does in most countries around the world. So we are reasonably myopic, and we will react to these losses without thinking that we had many years of strong returns beforehand, and. Um, yeah, so it's it's up to us as an industry to be able to communicate, well, hang on, we've had this drawdown, but even over five years and especially over 10 years, you've still had quite a good outcome on your superannuation. It's continued to grow. So, yeah, it's that messaging that's really important. Does that come back to as allocation? Are we mislabeling when we call things balanced funds? Yeah, I mean, there's no definitely an element to what you say because if we look at the risk contribution from the various assets in the portfolio. If you look at the pie chart of a balanced fund, you know, if it's a 60-40 or a 70-30, I'd probably say 60-40 is the more realistic type of numbers there from a growth versus defensive perspective. I think if you then do that on a risk allocation, I think you and I would both know that's probably 95% of the risk is being sourced, 90-95% of the risk is being sourced from growth and 5 to 10% is coming from defensive assets. So, there's definitely a, a question mark there about, well, well, what should balance mean? But, um, you know, if you, manage, if you chase the tail of a consumer, you will never get to a, a stable point because if, if I do the reverse to what you were just outlining, Alex, and had reasonably, conservative, reasonably conservatively constructed defaults, more balanced, then you've seen already um, many people have made the switch to the highest performing funds and and yeah, the less diversified funds over recent times. So you can easily you know, make these changes and you're still left with many of the issues of which relate to consumer behaviour. Oh, look, the, the, the issues of choice is a, is a, is a big one um, and choice based on just performance, which is what has been allowed to be advertised more broadly, I think is, is sort of part of that broader problem where people just look at a, a number and despite all these funds putting in their documentation that past performance is not representative of future performance, uh, it does have a big impact, especially, especially when they advertise it on the side of a bus as well. So uh, I get that. I think there's a great chart in actually APRA's heat map and it shows you the line. It's a, it's a diagram which contains lots of dots, which is the performance of superannuation funds against their growth defensive exposure. And there's a line that's fitted through that. It's a straight regression line. And it just is such a simple explanation that most of the return that comes through super funds is related to how much, you know, exposure they have to growth assets in their portfolios and there's a little bit of implementation around that um yeah it's probably plus or minus 50 basis points with your outliers being minus 75 basis points i think gets you sort of flagged in the red category 
And so, yeah, that's actually a really useful tool. We're all celebrating the top performers, but we're not really celebrating the right thing, which is, yeah, targeting the right amount of risk for investors and then really effectively converting that risk into return. You know, if we still celebrate the highest performing fund rather than the fund that's delivered the best risk-adjusted returns or expo risk exposure-adjusted returns, then whereas we as an industry are using the wrong language and that's just going to filter through to the way that we communicate to consumers. And like you say, when you're in a choice environment and you have consumers with low degrees of financial literacy, you can sort of see the, the you can easily predict the type of behaviours that will prevail. All right. Thank you very much, David, for your time today. It's uh, really been a pleasure. Thanks, Alex.